thanks, everyone. Um, it's such a pleasure, and I can tell you are all incredibly uh, motivated innovation types because here we are at the end of the festival, and the diehards are expected to be addressing maybe two people, and we've got a, we've got a, a pretty full room. So thank you for coming. I'm really honored. Uh, I wanted to tell you a little bit about how I see innovation changing, um, and also to uh, perhaps debunk a few myths, because I think uh, innovation is probably the most abused word in the English language. Um, let me ask him this. If you don't believe me, let me do a quick straw poll. How many of you in this room are against innovation? Raise your hands. <laughs> right, exactly. Now, if we're all for it, now what are we actually talking about, right? Uh, and so in the course of my talk today, um, I will promise to uh, uh, give you a, a, a proper working definition of innovation. Uh, I will uh, demolish a half a dozen myths, and uh, I will hope to uh, leave you with uh, three new rules of innovation that you can apply in your daily lives. And uh, if I don't do that, keep me honest, because we have a, a lot of uh, Q&A planned. I want this to be uh, interactive, and I want you to, especially when I say things that offend you in some way, if you think I've gotten it completely wrong, get your tomatoes and brickbats together, because I, I expect them to come at me fast and furious at the end of the talk. All right, is that a deal? All right, so let, let's make this fun. I figure, you know, we've had a great ideas fest, um, so we shouldn't just hear, be here to listen to some gas bag drone on and on, right? That's... That's my, my principle. So if I ever head too far down that road, again, throw some tomatoes. Um, and the, among the three propositions that I want to make today that I hope will stir the pot a little bit, that uh, greed can be glorious, losing is winning, and that disruptive dads beat tiger moms. <laughs> That's what I want to leave you with. Uh, it's always good to give you the last chapter of the book first, right? So uh, turning to... Uh, what I'm talking about when I talk about need. Again, the book's title is Need, Speed, and Greed, How the Coming Innovation Revolution Will Transform Industries, Propel Nations to Greatness, and Maybe Even Tame the World's Most Wicked Problems. Now, a lot of people that talk about innovation are optimists. Um, some of you have been to some of the panels uh, held thus far. Uh, I wanted to assure you that I'm not an optimist by starting with Need, And what I mean by need is that we now live in an age of tremendously difficult global challenges. Um, and I spend uh, the first part of the book um, surveying exactly what they are, uh, because I, I don't want to be accused of a sort of a Pollyannish view that technology will solve all problems, right, which we tend to get from certain corners of the universe, particularly Silicon Valley, that uh, you know, the latest app can somehow solve global warming or something, right? We know life is a little bit more complicated than that. And so I want to start just a little bit by talking about um, uh, the megatrends that make this a tremendously challenging century, and also one of the myths I wanted to demolish, that the idea that we're already working on those difficult problems. I think we're working on global problems, but we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of the difficult ones. And here's what I mean. Um, you know, we've spent much of the last decade, the first decade of this new century, uh, working on two really big global problems. One, uh, the war on terror post 9-11. Uh, it's, it's occupied a lot of our time and energy, and rightly so. It's a very difficult problem. The second is uh, the crisis in capitalism, post Enron, and then much more so post Lehman Brothers. Right? And these look like the most difficult kind of global problems. They've sucked the oxygen out of our political system in Washington. They've been incredibly difficult. But guess what? These are not the hardest problems we face. Um, these are not even novel problems. If you look at political terrorism, 
It's been with us for over a thousand years. Humanity, in one form or manner, has had to deal with this. And equally, crisis in capitalism? Tell me a time when there wasn't a crisis in capitalism. All right? You know, it's just if you don't uh, find one today, just wait a few minutes. Go back to the South Sea bubbles or the tulip manias. Uh, crisis and capitalism go together. The challenge for every generation is to figure out the particulars and how to move on with a new set of institutional arrangements so you can make it tolerable and get the benefits of capitalism. On the other hand, if you look at the megatrends that we're living through, the ones that will endure throughout the century, those are the ones that were really creating the, the bit of a perfect storm that we find ourselves in. One of them, demography, right? The world is aging rapidly, and this is evident not only in rich countries, uh, we know the stories about Japan and Italy sort of hollowing out, not having enough children uh, to reproduce their population. But this is a story in China and in many parts of the developing world as well, where there's a pensions crisis that's coming. They've already used the demographic dividend, as it's been called, of young people entering the labor force. And so we have a, uh, that's one important factor, as, which is going to have enormous implications, for example, for the health sector, with Alzheimer's, for example, being a trillion-dollar problem to come we have yet to begin to really grapple with in other health uh, issues uh, related to age. A second problem, uh, not really a problem, but second trend is uh, the urbanization of mankind. Now, you will know, a couple of years ago, our species became an urban species for the first time in human history, uh, all of mankind. And China, a crucible of a lot of the problems and potential of humanity, became an urban society just about three months ago, according to official records. And we know what the trend lines are. There's no doubt, uh, if you look at every estimate, within 20 to 30 years, that 50% figure will be 70% and heading further towards the megalopolises of the future, right? And we also know the implications of all of this. Some people throw their hands up and say, oh my goodness, you know, this is a disaster waiting to happen. Uh, we're going to lose the pastoral life. It's an environmental catastrophe. It's a resources catastrophe. Um, it might be. But let's also look at the other side of things. Urbanization provides the opportunity to build cities that are smarter, more resource efficient, because you have people in a more dense form, as opposed to, say, some of the exurbs, like in the American Southwest, where people are spread out, uh, often with heavy subsidies for the water, for example, that they receive, uh, and in ways that are not really economically or environmentally efficient. So there is an opportunity, but it requires a little bit of thought. It requires a little bit of attention. It won't happen by itself. Um, and that sort of hints at the other sort of megatrend of our age, and that is we're living in an age of tremendous pressure on resources. It's been called the, the food, energy, water nexus because these things really come together, don't they? Um, uh, you need the energy to uh, produce the food in the form of fertilizer. Uh, and again, well, water is an interrelated problem for all of these things. So when I look at these problems, you say, gosh, these, this really makes for a perfect storm. You add into it even the positive forces of the last few decades, the globalization, the Googleization, that's brought us tremendous prosperity, connectivity, that's made this 24-7 economy possible. If you look at the flip side of that, the potential for pandemics, uh, you will know that we live in an age of deadly pandemics. It's much more dangerous to be alive from the perspective of either viral pandemics uh, or the bacterial superbugs than it, uh, today than it was 30 or 40 years ago. Our antibiotics are much less effective today, and we don't have much in the pipeline uh, coming uh, for reasons we can talk about. And in terms of the viral pandemics, like the H1N1 that came through a couple of years ago, we were lucky, it was benign, we dodged a bullet, 
But what it taught us, those people that look at public health, is that we were not prepared and the, and the response was not very good, to be honest. Uh, and so we need to do much better with pandemic surveillance. All of this, though, is in part because it's the underbelly of globalization and Googleization. 50 years ago, the viral chatter that leads to, for example, um, uh, a, no a novel virus spreading from bushmeat into a hunter might have died out before that hunter got sick and got anywhere. But today, the encroachment of population and society onto the, the last remaining wild areas means it's very easy for that novel virus to transmit from, again, the, that kind of viral chatter has gone on for millions of years. That part of it is nothing new. What's new is how we have organized ourselves as society and how connected we are. You can quickly get from, say, the Congo or Guangzhou to a city like Nairobi or Hong Kong on a plane, and before you know it, it's here in Aspen or in Munich or in other capitals of the world, as we saw with the SARS epidemic. And so that's the kind of world we live in. It's actually more dangerous, not less, than it was 30 or 40 years ago. And why do I say all this? It's not because I'm a gloomy Gus, right? I'm not a pessimist either. Uh, but I wanted to make the case that the kinds of problems we face require a certain seriousness of attention, but it also requires a more ambition. We need a, a new, more ambitious, more democratic way to innovate if we're going to have the possibility of taming these big problems. Because the problems we have today really are bigger in scale, they're more novel. Some of them have, for example, climate change, irreversible triggers, where uh, we may need to act sooner if we don't want outcomes that are undesirable for our children or grandchildren. And so the, the scale and nature and scope of the problems are different. So how do we get through this? That's a question, right? How do we get through this perfect storm? Some people say um, it's a population bomb, plain and simple. There's just too many people, right? And that's why the resource problem is there. And we need to do something very drastic about the population bomb. Other people argue that it's inevitable we're going to have resource wars. Uh, resources are fixed. There's too much competition for them, especially now that China and India and the emerging markets are on the rise. Now, th there's no way that this can be resolved without tension. I mean, how many of you have heard the idea that the next world war will be over fresh water? I think we've all seen documentaries or heard talks about that. Um, so that sort of argument is out there. And other people say, including many good friends of mine in, in the environmental movement, some of whom are here uh, at Aspen, uh, that conservation is really the only way. I mean, let's get serious. The lifestyles that people lead, the way that we've led ourselves, conducted ourselves is completely uh, unsustainable. The only solution to the perfect storm, the only way through, is through a dramatic pathway of conservation. And I'm here to offend you in part and to provoke, so I'm going to tell you, I think every one of these is fundamentally the wrong way to think about the problem, and sometimes even dangerous and unhelpful. And I'll tell you why. Um, if we look at the arguments about the population bomb, the premise is that people are a problem, right? And my starting premise is actually that people are part of the solution. The people are future innovators in waiting. We have very difficult problems that are often best solved by people closest to them. And thinking of people as a resource is a much better starting point. Now, what you need to do, though, is make sure people are empowered. In particular, girls and women have access to education, to economic uh, development, and when you find you are able to bring in a culture of empowerment and education, people provide solutions for the problems that seem impossible when you're at a distant capital or at the World Bank looking at the world and saying, oh, well, look at all these problems. We need top-down solutions. Or that the people are a population bomb. And you'll all remember the great Stanford professor, Paul Ehrlich, wrote a book called The Population Bomb um, several decades ago that predicted that this would be a major problem. We'd run out of food. 
an allied school of thinkers, the Club of Rome thinkers. Again, many distinguished economists and policy thinkers at the time argued that because of the related problems of resources, that world would lead to an inevitable crunch on most resources. In fact, that didn't happen. They were right to issue the warning, and, but the markets and society and policy responded very differently than what they had predicted. We didn't run out of food, we didn't run out of oil, uh, and people were not a bomb. On the contrary, what we found actually in practice is as policies of empowerment um, have spread in the last 30 years, uh, you've actually found most forecasts for population, including from the UN, um, have gone from like a sharp line projection like this going up and the, to a curve where it's um, uh, becoming moderated. That gives, tells me two things. First of all, whenever you see a straight line forecast and people stand behind it and say, look, the future's bleak, there's a straight line forecast, take it with a grain of salt. No straight line forecasts ever really work out in real life. Uh, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. But the second thing is people used to say, oh, well, you know, culture, Muslim countries, they'll, they'll never adopt, uh, say, you know, birth control or, or other methods. Uh, its its population is going to be out of control. If you look at East Africa, if you look at Bangladesh, some of the greatest success stories in the moderation of population growth have been in these places because, again, empowerment and education for girls. And that is a powerful tool and that has helped radically change the trajectory of population growth to where people can actually be part of the solution. So that's why I, I, I want to debunk that myth. On the point about um, you know, resources being fixed, there must be resource wars, that you know, these lines about how uh, we're going to run out of everything, just look at the forecast. The reason to take them with a grain of salt, when you actually look at history of how, say, commodities or resources behave, what you find is that development is a dynamic dance. It doesn't work in a straight line. Why? Because in real life, yes, prices may go up because of scarcity for some particular commodity or resource, but you often see a response. You see a response from people who may use less. They may return to efficiency. You may see substitution by other things. You often see a response from producers or companies that are involved uh, by diversifying, by investing in alternatives. And so uh, you actually see a multiplicity of responses. And it's, as I say, it's a dynamic response. And time and time again, that's what I've just described is how innovation begins to work. That is, you see shortages, you see uh, price spikes, but you actually see responses coming to the marketplace. And time and time again, with one commodity or resource after another, we have shown that's actually what happens. Now, there's no reason to be glib and do nothing. And I started with need, right? I'm starting with uh, acknowledging the problems. But I also wanted to convey the power of innovation that's often forgotten in the conversation. And just to give you one example of why Thinking resources as fixed. People say there's only a certain amount of, and you can fill in the blank, food, which was often said before. And of course, the Green Revolution, led by Norman Borlaug, uh, who won the Nobel Peace Prize and passed away recently, um, saved India from starvation. Innovation can make an extraordinary difference. When you go back to 1950, granite in Vermont was a worthless material, used for tombstone, not much else. But by 1980, it had become much more precious, fetched a very high price. The reason is because in the meanwhile, the civilian nuclear power sector had taken off. And guess what? That granite happened to have uranium in it. Now, I'm not here to advocate nuclear power. I've actually written cover stories in The Economist arguing that uh, there are challenges when it comes to the economics of nuclear. So this is not about that. My point is different. When the definition of resources changes over time because of human ingenuity, we can't talk about our future quite as bleakly as those that might in the course of doom. 
I think innovation is the game changer. And there is an urgent need to apply more effective innovation, more ambitious innovation, especially because the very tools and rules of innovation are now changing very rapidly. And that's part of what I discuss in the book through a lot of case studies from around the world showing how we innovate itself is being innovated, what's been called meta-innovation. The rules of innovation themselves are changing. And, and there I'll talk about that in a moment. And the final point, you might say, well, conservation. You know, what do you have against conservation, pal? And I have nothing against conservation. Please, I urge all of you to conserve. If it, if it suits your temperament. My problem with conservation is that people often conflate conservation with energy efficiency. And those are two different things. Um, they're both good, but let me ask you this. Um, should grandma on a cold winter night in North Dakota really turn the thermostat all the way down to conserve energy? I think if you're a reasonable, you'd say, mm, please grandma, keep the heat on, right? On the other hand, if you went the previous summer and said, look, this is a crummy old building, Grandma. Let me uh, put in some insulation and, and some you know, proper windows, double-glazed windows, maybe put in an energy-efficient boiler for you. So she was able to get all of the energy services that she needed at half the energy. Now, I think we could all agree that was a good deal. And that was probably a smart thing to do. And that's probably something you can get everybody to agree on. Conservation tends to have a certain kind of moral disapproval associated with it. You know, uh, wearing slightly uncomfortable sweaters and tut-tutting your neighbors. And that may or may not be a good thing, but it, but it certainly won't suit 100% of the population. I think you'll agree with that. Not everyone's going to come along. But I think pragmatic, reasonable people will support efficiency because it's common sense. It's always good, in my view. And so I say the problems we face are so difficult because I'm starting from the perspective of need. And I say the needs are so great, and the challenges are getting more challenging, more difficult in this perfect storm. We need 100% of us to come along, not just those that are willing to wear the hair shirt. And so let's be pragmatic, leave ideology at the doorstep, and embrace those uh, solutions that are going to bring much more of society with this. That's my argument and my beef with conservation. So I've given you three reasons why uh, the, the, the chorus of doom, I think, it gets it wrong. So how do we get through the perfect storm? I think the only way is through a dramatic acceleration in the global pace of innovation. Now, what, does that, what do I mean by innovation? Because I've, I've told you I think it's a, the most abused word in the English language, right? So let me not make that mistake myself. Innovation is not invention. Innovation is not technology. Innovation is not intellectual property rights or patents. It's not the number of engineers a company has or a country graduates. Uh, do all these things sound familiar? Because oftentimes, when you hear about innovative companies or rankings of countries that are innovative, these are the kinds of tick marks. Oh, this is how much China spent on R&D. Therefore, it must be innovative, right? Now, these are all good things. You know, I'm an MIT engineer, so I, I, I'm very happy to, to support more engineering and science education. I'm glad to see countries invest in science. Uh, and so I think these are all wonderful things. But, we, but these are inputs into a process. They're not the output. We end up measuring the wrong thing. For me, innovation is something different. These are all things associated with invention. But I think innovation is actually fresh thinking that may or may not involve new technology that creates value. And that creating something valuable is the harder part of the process. Because coming up with a gadget or gizmo is actually the easy part. Finding a way to meet an unmet need or a business model around it or meeting a relevant uh, need in a social sector that hasn't been met, those are much, much harder. And that's the difference between something cute or clever or novel 
and genuine value-creating innovation. So innovation in the social sector, if you're, a, say, a hybrid company with uh, social motives, might be for your stakeholders. If you're a, a part of a government that wants to do something different and uh, path-breaking, it might be for citizens. And of course, for traditional for-profit companies, you would think about your customers, you'd think about your shareholders. But if you, the test has to be, are you creating value? Not, is this new, is it clever, can we get a patent on it? And that tends to be, again, a very Silicon Valley way of thinking about things. And equally, on Wall Street, people called innovation, uh, they abused the word to name all kinds of financial products and derivatives and cleverly engineered uh, things that created no enduring value. And we now know with the benefit of hindsight, they were allowed to flourish because it was called innovation. We have to be pro-innovation. So I take a t just as tough a line with my friends on Wall Street, and I used to live in New York for many years before moving to China, uh, as I do with uh, my friends from my technology days, uh, that they get away with calling it innovation. I say, hang on a minute. What's the value you're creating for society? That's what we should hold things to a higher bar. And so fresh thinking that creates value. Let me give you an example that brings us to light. Maybe go back in time a little bit. If you go back to the 1880s, America had an energy crisis. Does anyone remember uh, what that energy crisis was? The lady in the back? Uh, because of? Oh, no, I'm going back to the 1880s, way back in time, back when I was a kid. You're too young to remember. Yes, sir, go ahead. Exactly. It was a lighting crisis. And the whalers of my native Connecticut managed to kill off most of uh, the whales around the world, sadly, very you know, tragically. And so the lanterns of the wealthy families, uh, like the J.P. Morgan's families, could not be lit from whale blubber. And it was a major crisis, right? And, so, and we hadn't obviously come to grid electrification and some of the other modern uh, technologies yet. And so a group of investors from New Haven said, um, gosh, we, no, this is an opportunity. What can we do? And they found a guy called Colonel Drake, who turns out he wasn't really a colonel. He's a bit of a shifty character, but he was very clever. And they said, Colonel, we know you're a very uh, clever guy. Uh, we hear out in Pennsylvania there are these rocks that ooze oil, and oil comes out of the ground. This, this petroleum stuff has been used by the Native Americans to uh, you know, light rags and things. Can you see if you can get enough quantity of that over to New England and we can sell it? And so that was his challenge, right? So he went off and spent months trying to find a way to get enough of this stuff. And he did what everyone else there was doing. Is he dug with a shovel uh, to try to get enough. And what happens when you dig for oil? You end up with dirt, right? Not oil. And so after months and months, he finally got a letter saying, Colonel, we're sorry, the money's run out. You know, the, we, we give up. So on that last day sitting on his porch, sipping lemonade, he thought, well, this is the end of the road. But then he had an idea. He remembered from his history books that the Chinese used to drill for salt. He said, what the heck? I got nothing to lose. So on that last day, he jury-rigged a drilling rig. And you know where this story is going, right? Of course, he hit a magnificent gusher, the first big gusher in the history of the world. And from that was born the first American oil boom and the first American energy uh, industry, really. And he created enormous value for his shareholders, certainly for the customers who enjoyed the benefits of light, helped pave the way for a century of oil, and with it, the internal combustion engine and modern mobility. Clearly value-creating, but he had no new technology. 
It was just fresh thinking from another time, another industry, another country applied in that place. I think that's the right way to think about innovation. And those of you in your own lives, especially those of you in companies uh, who tend to be focused on tech, the right way to think about it is to have no pride of authorship, is to say, how do we apply something fresh that creates value in what we're doing? How do we make it better? And I think that's the challenge, not to be too wedded only to things that you do or uh, that you invent, not invented here syndrome. And so I give you that example to give you my definition uh, that I promised you, fresh thinking that creates value. Now, I want to talk a little bit about greed, because it's, it's a wonderful word, isn't it? Um, greed has come in for quite a bashing in these days of uh, the backlash against Wall Street, and I think that's... Uh, it's only appropriate. You know, I, I've argued, uh, I covered the Enron debacle back in the day because I used to be energy correspondent at my magazine, and I argued that America's regulators fell asleep at the wheel. Uh, and I wrote, not only on the pages of The Economist, I wrote a New York Times op-ed piece arguing that the federal regulators, FERC, under both Clinton um, and Bush, uh, fell asleep at the wheel in my experience and my evidence that I presented, uh, and that this was a case where um, there was an appropriate role for government even though we're a free market magazine. So I'm not here to argue for untrammeled free markets. What I am here to say is that the problems we face today are so challenging, are so difficult, we need to unleash the best of entrepreneurial energy that we have from the bottom up. And that can be in private companies or startup companies. It can be in the social sector, where there's an enormous dynamism of um, hybrid enterprises, of groups like Ashoka and the Acumen Fund. There's interesting new business models coming up that combine doing good for society, but also with having viable business models. And so that essence, the insight of capitalism, I call it greed, I think can be really tapped into so that we can move from a model of greed is good, sort of a Gordon Gecko capitalism that rewards uh, excesses, to thinking about how to harness greed for good. And that takes a little harder thinking. That means we need to think about how do we reward innovators better uh, who work in the social sector, that who, who work on climate change, who might work on neglected problems. How do we find more rewards as society? And this is a tough problem. Government is only part of the thinking process on this. How do we reward those who work on socially important problems more and harness their greed to do well for themselves, but also to have their organization succeed? Because in my experience and all the literature that I've looked at, it is very difficult for government to get it right. In the history of innovation, uh, history is littered with uh, how and why government got innovation wrong by picking specific technologies, picking specific companies. Uh, if you look at the examples of industrial policy in the 1970s, or more recently, uh, the revival of industrial policy in the wake, the understandable backlash against capitalism in the uh, post Lehman Brothers and so on, uh, we have seen not only a dramatic expansion of government, but we've seen in places like France, for example, uh, toy making has been declared a strategic industry and must be protected, and innovation must be brought from you know, state mandarins who are going to... In China, where I now live, and I cover China for, the, for my magazine, um, the government has made innovation its number one priority, uh, and the way they do it is they put it in the five-year plan. They say, we're going to throw hundreds of billions of dollars. We're going to dominate, for example, the Internet of Things, which those of you who follow technology know, it's one of the big hot areas in technology, the next wave of internet investment. And they've decided which places in China uh, run by the government are going to create the internet of things and how much money is going to go to which government-funded center. And that's not the lesson of Silicon Valley. That's not how Silicon Valley started. Government played an important role, but it, was, it did not preordain the outcomes. And so I think um, we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater 
And so in a sense, I'm making a very unpopular appeal uh, in favor of capitalism, but maybe a smarter, better capitalism, one where we reward innovators who can uh, tap into unmet societal needs better. And so that's a charge for us to think about how to harness greed for good. Now, why does this matter so much? I think it, it matters principally because we have now come to a stage where we live in the ideas economy. And now we're here at the Ideas Festival. It's only appropriate to, to talk about this. But in the age when we primarily derived economic growth uh, from brawn is long gone. Uh, you know, 80% of U.S. GDP, more than any of the other developed countries, now comes from use of the brain, not brawn. And if you look across the OECD countries, the rich countries, the average maybe two-thirds of their GDP comes from uh, these sectors. In emerging economies, it's much lower. But even China uh, is, has come to the end of the road on so-called cheap China. Why? Because wages have been rising at double-digit rates in coastal China. Uh, the sweatshops that make the stuff that we all buy at Walmart and elsewhere. Um, and regulations have been uh, crimping the style of those exporting companies. And you ask the question, why is that? And the reason is there's now so many people in the middle classes in China, which is a great success story, right? It's good for everyone. It's good for the world. It's wonderful to have so many people lifted out of poverty. You could just look at it from the human perspective. But there are people who will buy American products. Uh, there are people who will contribute their ideas with new business models uh, that are going to help save us money on health care. And I'll tell you about a Chinese company that's doing that already. So this is a good thing in many ways. But they're also, as middle-class citizens, they don't want toxic sludge dumped on their children any more than you and I do. And so they're demanding that factories be held accountable, and that's what's happening. In the coastal regions of China, you're getting much stricter environmental regulations, for example, which is a cost to business. Uh, before, you could dump the sludge out the back uh, into the river. Now, if you do it, whistleblowers turn up. And this is encouraged by the authorities in Beijing, the central authorities. If people in the factories want to, uh, there's often 800 numbers, free phone numbers, where people can call and television crews will come in with night vision goggles and film bosses doing illicit stuff. And so there's an interesting situation where the authorities in Beijing are actually using the, uh, an outraged public and a press that's ring-fenced. They're allowed to have freedom on environmental reporting, and they're allowed to point fingers, as long as the finger doesn't point all the way to the top, <laughs> right? This is China, but if you can po point to a local party boss, a mayor, uh, maybe a local general's son, it's encouraged because Beijing doesn't have the power and authority actually to enforce its regulations. That's the secret. So they actually use these means to help them. There are actually some enlightened bureaucrats at the top who are trying to do the right thing, and there's lots of corrupt folks all over the place trying to make a quick buck. So they see this as a tool that helps central authority. And so you have this phenomenon. The point of that story, though, is uh, even China is moving towards, aspiring to moving towards innovation, move more of a services economy. Services not just meaning flipping burgers at, uh, you know, at McDonald's, but value-added services even within the manufacturing sector, for example, something that Germany does very, very well, where people live very well. And that's a lesson the U.S. could take from uh, another economy. So when we live in the ideas economy, the only sustainable basis for competitive advantage is going to have a continuing series of better ideas that we implement better than other people. That's the only way to stay ahead of the competition. It's not going to be wage rates. We can't be cheaper than it. Today might be China. Tomorrow might be Vietnam. Uh, you know, Burma's coming online. There's, there's no shortage of places that are going to be cheaper than America. We have to do it better. And, and that gets to uh, how we educate 
and this is a, a big conversation. There have been a lot of sessions and experts here, but what my studies have shown, it fits in with my argument, is that you know, um, why I, I promise to tell you why I think disruptive dads beat tiger moms. It's not just because I'm the father, a first-time father and a, of a nine-month-old girl, uh, and we're about to move to China uh, into the mainland. It's because I look at what we need to succeed in the ideas economy. Uh, if you look at the tiger mom argument, and I know Amy Chua has been here uh, all week, so uh, uh, it's not to, to pick on her, but the idea, uh, and I come from an Asian family, so I was raised with this ethos. I was born in India, and you know, when I was five years old, if I didn't know 12 by 12, I was wrapped on the knuckles by my teacher, right, uh, or worse. And so the, the, it still continues in that mentality of how rote memorization, uh, standardization, deference to authority, uh, these are the cultural values that are taught to this day in that manner of teaching. And I think that um, what you find is in an innovation economy, in an ideas economy, of course you need to know your reading, writing, and arithmetic. Let's be honest. That's the price of entry to doing well in the 21st century. But actually, if that's all you focus on, then you're unable to be creative. You're unable to disrupt. You have to be able to think in a way that challenges constraints. You have to be able to come with a certain uh, creative flair. And that's something American higher education still does better than anywhere else in the world. And that's why, uh, if you look at China, record numbers of Chinese are coming to American universities. You all know this in your own communities, because even though they get the best scores on some of the standardized tests back home in high school, where they want to go is where the best universities still are. And so that's a national treasure we shouldn't let, let fall by the wayside. But that lesson should permeate down to our primary education as well. Uh, and that is to encourage a certain kind of disruption, a certain irreverence. You know, learn your math. You must know your um, multiplication tables. But uh, also allow children, encourage them uh, to be a bit uh, of a dissenter when it comes to uh, uh, authority in the classroom and at home. Because if you don't have that, you end up with what you find in, uh, in China. And I talk to lots and lots of companies that are trying to do innovation, multinationals and Chinese companies. And what they tell me is um, they have great strengths in doing process engineering, that is, getting the same thing over and over, doing it very well, finding small tweaks uh, in how to make something cheaper, faster, better. Um, but the chairman of a company uh, called MindRay, which is a Chinese medical devices company, it's New York Stock Exchange listed. I was talking with him recently for a story, and he said, look, um, you know, they, they've made an extraordinary success. This is actually an example of the kind of disruptive innovation that I advocate. Um, medical innovation is the only industry, perhaps, where innovation has come to mean a lot more expensive and just a little bit better each year, right? Uh, every scanner that comes out from the big companies, you know their names. Um, you know, I mean, we're grateful for technology. We all want to make sure we have the best care. But uh, do you really need, you know, not just an open MRI, but a drive-through MRI and who knows, you know, a, a swim-through MRI next year because it's just a little bit better and for, for double the price? Uh, we all kind of feel like, hang on a minute, you know, and, and does every test need to be referred to in our system? So I think everyone kind of knows the system's a little bit broken here. Uh, it's almost like defense. It's a cost-plus basis. So whatever they can come up with, they can have some little bit extra marginal benefit. They're going to get repaid by... Uh, healthcare systems around the world on a cost-plus basis. But that's not innovation. If you look at you know, your cell phone, your car, you look at you know, anything, um, uh, computers, it's cheaper, better, faster. That's how innovation works. That's how it should work. We're living in an extraordinary age where technological advances and economic advances and globalization are making innovation accessible to more and more people. Medical devices has ended up in an odd dead end. 
And so companies in the developing world are doing what I call frugal engineering. They're used to come into it saying, let's do something cheap and cheerful because we can't afford $100,000 scanners in all the villages in China or in India or Brazil. But here's what's new and what I learned in the last few years by talking with lots of these companies, like this company, MindRay, that I mentioned. Um, they started off by saying, we can't afford GE or Siemens or Philips. In fact, the chairman tells me he couldn't even get a meeting, and an appointment, to present his ideas at the big companies. But they said, you know, in China, um, all the big boys, for example, in ultrasound were working on moving to color, because one of the great... Uh, traits of technology companies is you always want to gold plate your technology. You want to cater to your best customers. Harvard professor Clay Christensen identified this as a phenomenon. He said that companies want to cater to their best customers. They have lots of scientists and you know, they keep wanting to make the next best product. Here's the problem. You cater to ever smaller elites of customers. It leaves you wide open at the bottom to be disrupted by a cheap and cheerful technology that's good enough. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Isn't that what happened with the personal computer? Right? That's a classic example and uh, where the mainframe and mid-sized computers were meant to be for serious users, companies, and the personal computer was seen as a toy. And of course, the, the companies that ran, the big companies at the time, Digital, Wang, do these names sound familiar to you? Well, guess what? They're all bust. They're gone. The chairman of Digital at the time, a brilliant guy, um, said, I see no reason why anyone should own a personal computer in their home. Right? Now, it sounds ridiculous today, but that was the mindset the industry was trapped in at the time, and it helped explain why they made the investments they made. You have a legacy mindset. But these disruptive innovators, as Professor Christensen coined the term, um, often come in and see that there's an opportunity, and a very broad opportunity. And in medical devices, the opportunity is enormous because the incumbent players are gold-plating their assets so much uh, that it creates a huge opportunity at the bottom. That's what a company like MindRay saw. And they said, you know what, everyone's building very expensive, complicated systems to go to color. You know, that's too much for us. We can't do that. But, you know, we know a lot about making uh, digital. This is before the technology went digital. And in China, they were making a lot of the back-end stuff for computers. So they said, why don't we make it digital? And the guys said, yeah, we could throw that together. And they put together a scanner that was one-tenth the price of the prevailing market price for the Western competitors. But it was the first that was digital. And they were able to produce, and I would argue that was cheaper and better because they, they produced a, a dramatic advantage. And we all know digital is clearly the way to go. That was the future. Uh, but it wasn't seen as a, uh, the right way to go by the big companies who were trapped in a certain mindset. And that's the kind of thinking that I say that frugal engineering from the developing economies is changing the way innovation itself is done. It used to be that only elites, you know, sort of, uh, white-coated graybeard sitting at AT&T Bell Labs or Xerox Park used to come up with wonderful no prizes that you know Nobel prizes for their works, and eventually the technology would be handed on down from high to little people like us, and we would have the telephone or you know things. Well, guess what? It, those were important times, and it was good perhaps for that time and place, but. The trends towards open innovation, networked innovation, user-generated innovation that have been made possible in the last 10 to 20 years are so powerful. And the rise of frugal engineers and new ways of doing disruption from, from any corner of the world mean that you cannot have a closed way of doing innovation. Whether you're a startup company in America or whether you're a government agency, there's going to be somebody who's got a better idea, who's going to execute it better. You need to think about how you can connect with them. And this might mean rethinking, for example, your intellectual property rights. Uh, many companies are very secretive because they want to protect their IP, right, their patents. But 
oftentimes you'll find your competitors, if they're more open, if they're willing to either share IP or just say, you know what, forget the IP. Let's work on trade secrets. Let's get to market faster. And then let's invent the next generation of the technology faster. Because anyway, we know if we go to a market like China, they're going to steal our IP anyway. Right? It's going to take them a couple of years to catch up. The only answer is to innovate faster. And that's why I say the very nature of innovation, the rules of innovation themselves are being innovated. And lots of examples I give in the book about what this means for our own lives. Um, but coming back to the chairman of Mindray, I asked him, how is innovation different? How is it done differently uh, in China versus the US? And I asked him this because his company not only has become a great success, uh, in fact, one of the big Western companies, their vice chairman, I asked recently about them, and he said, oh, we should have bought them 10 years ago, was what he told me. He wouldn't even take a meeting from them 10 years ago, is the truth, right? Um, and so I asked the chairman of Mineray, he said, look, you know, we bought a Western uh, company in California, R&D Lab, because we wanted to find out how the Americans do it, because Americans R&D is fantastic. It's the gold standard. You know, we're just learning how to do this. And so he, uh, now he has hundreds of engineers, Americans in the US, and thousands in, in Shenzhen, China. And I asked him, what's the difference? He said, there are differences. You know, when we start a new project, and he gave two examples of products uh, that came out, successful products, our uh, Western engineers do everything by the book. You know, they want to do it properly, they want to plan it, they aim for the next generation, kind of the gold plating idea, that we want to make a really solid next generation product that's a big breakthrough. But it took them five years to come out with that next product. And it was a success, it was good, but the Chinese engineers came up with a cheap and cheerful sort of version 2.0 that got to market and completely demolished the competition. And he said, you know, my Chinese engineers work very differently. Uh, they don't follow the rules. They don't always do all the uh, testing that they need to do. They try stuff. And if they need to, when there's a project deadline, he says, there are cultural problems. And the two teams have to work together. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, the Chinese engineers, if there's a deadline, they'll work through the night. They keep mattresses under the bed. I don't tell them to do this. We don't ask them to do this. This is just how they are. They work through the night. Through, do they work through the weekends? Americans like to go home. <laughs> and, and so as an American, I said to myself, boy, you know, this, there's a tough competitor that's working very, very hard. Uh, we, you know, we should take some notes and not be too relaxed. But equally, he said, but I have some problems with my Chinese engineers. I can't get them to think creatively. Uh, and it takes me two years to re-educate them after their engineering educations here in China. Our education system is completely useless. That's a direct quote. He says, they teach them rote memorization. They teach them abstract text. They're completely useless. It takes me two years to retrain the engineers I hire here in China. And so, uh, and in particular, when it comes to innovation, going for fresh thinking, he says, it's very difficult to get his Chinese engineers to do that. And so that's a perspective that uh, there are still some enduring strengths here in America that we should build on. So don't buy it when people say, China's eating our lunch. You know what, there's still some wonderful strengths. China's a formidable competitor, but it has a long way to go and has certain cultural weaknesses. And that's why I say, disruptive dads beat tiger moms. <laughs> you knew I had to bring it back to that somehow, right? Because I'd made you a promise. Finally, and I've kind of hinted at this, and I'm going to open up for questions in a moment, um, and that is uh, speed. And that's the third part of the book. I've talked about need and greed uh, and speed. I've given you a sense uh, of how the pace of innovation is changing. I think you'll agree. Fundamentally, the, the world economy is moving faster, and this is going to affect not just how companies um, work, but how economies at the national level work. Uh, we're going to have to be much more willing to deal with disruption. That is, when jobs are lost, when companies become less relevant. We're going to have to find better ways as a national economy to deal with that. 
because simply locking down, uh, putting up barriers, I don't think that's going to work. It never worked very well before, least of all for the U.S. as a, as a free trading nation that benefits enormously from having trading partners that keep their barriers open. We can't shut down to the world. And so we need to do a lot better at dealing with economic dislocation, with job loss. And we, uh, this is something we're just, uh, in my view, have neglected to do properly. This is going to get worse, not better. And that's not good news I'm bringing you, but I'm simply saying what I see in the global economy, uh, that we're going to have, a, we're entering a much more dangerous, much more disruptive pace. Um, and so how do you deal with this? And in our individual lives, with education systems, with um, our own children uh, and our careers, I say uh, you need to be ready to retool. To re- uh, and part of the uh, lesson that I learned here is that it's not conventional education. It's the days when you could put your kid on that big yellow bus let them go off to school and, and expect that they're going to get the education they need to do well in life, those days are gone. And you know this already. But the reason it's gone is because we have moved to an ideas economy where everyone, whether you're in a blue-collar job or a white-collar job, is going to be expected to think on the job. You're not just making widgets where you're making the same task over and over. Even in manufacturing, the most manual of, ta- of, of uh, industries, it's increasingly going to be transformed by the revolution that's coming. What, on a recent cover story in my magazine, we called it the third industrial revolution. That is 3D printing, that is the democratization of industrial technologies so that anyone at their laptop design software, any one of us in this room can be designing um, uh, the next product. It doesn't, you don't have to be a, a capitalist with millions of dollars to own a factory anymore. Um, if you're in the Bay Area, for example, you can go to Tech Shop, which is like a Kinko's, except they have incredibly advanced industrial lathes and CAD CAM machines for you to use. You pay 100 bucks a month today, and you can use them and make super advanced parts using advanced materials. Um, or you could do it from home at your laptop and send the file in. And they're spreading across the nation. And the price is 100 bucks a month today. It'll be cheaper than your gym tomorrow. Right? That's coming to you, and that's going to democratize even manufacturing, which had been very centralized. So a revolution is coming. The rules, I would say, you know, be open, move nimbly, fail gracefully. <laughs> With that, thank you very much. I see a, a questioner in the back. I'm sorry, there's a microphone coming to you, I think. Oh, there's a mic in the center of the room. I'm so sorry. They're asking if you could come up. Uh, you could really help me with, and maybe us, is the human factor, okay? You live now in China, and we're Americans, and it's going to take interactiveness between us. Could you possibly, up your sleeve, have five ways in which you would suggest us negotiating and dealing with the Chinese? Gosh, uh, five, five is a lot, but let me, let me give a couple of thoughts. I, I think... I was going to say ten. Right, exactly. Well... <laughs> Read the book. There's more than 12. No. Uh, no I, think, you know, part, I think you kind of uh, put a finger on the most important thing, that is the human dimension. I think um, it is very, very easy. And I fell into the same trap, even though I've gone to China at least once a year for the last 30 years. Um, it is easy to think of the Chinese, right? Um, and in fact, it's an incredibly diverse country. Uh, It's easy to think of the government in Beijing or the dictatorship. In fact, it is an incredibly um, uh, uh, diverse country with enormous regional power centers. 
Um, and, and when you're dealing with somebody in a, a distant province, the old Chinese proverb, which is slightly apocryphal, but I'll use it anyway, you know, the emperor is far and the mountains are high. And what, that, what does that mean? That's sort of, you know, the, Beijing might lay down a law or say that something, or give you a contract saying you can do something in a province, but you get out to a regional province, and guess what? Things don't work like that in this province. You need to start all over, make your relationships, figure out what the contracts are that matter over here. And so, uh, and, and sometimes it's a lot better than the, what perceptions are. Sometimes it's worse. And so I think um, uh, the more Americans can go to China, I think, and have contact and figure this out, whether it's on personal trips or on business, I think that's the number one way we can improve our understandings and dealings. It doesn't mean it's always going to be a positive experience because some stuff is terrible. You know, it's, uh, the, right, the human rights record is not great in China, and no one should celebrate that. But at least you'll see the regional diversity and richness and not treat it as sort of a monolithic block, which it's not. Sir. Sure. Um, I was interested in the distinction you were drawing between, um, I guess, isolated invention and more widely adopted, widely accessible innovation that's, you know, that everybody has access to. Um, and I wanted to ask you a question specifically around in, pharma- in the pharmaceutical world and with, in terms of specialty pharmaceuticals, these biologics, you know, generally, mm-hmm. you know, almost monopolistic because of, because of the nature of, of what they are. Um, very high cost, very important, import, important medications. And what your thoughts were on accelerating the regulatory pathway for biosimilars or biogenerics. Right. Um, and on the other hand, that it would you know, lower the cost dramatically for these life-saving medications. And on the other hand, you know, disincentivize you know, the initial drug maker, the brand name drug maker. And Wanted to hear your sure. I mean, I'll give you a short answer that deserves a much longer answer, and I actually give a case study in my book about this. I spent five years as our healthcare correspondent. Um, it was the five years covering Obamacare, for example. So uh, uh, it was a very interesting time covering that beat, but it was also uh, covering pharma companies, biotech. Uh, the short answer is this: it's a very technical question, maybe for some people. Bottom line, uh, you know, there is a potential coming out of biotech to produce extraordinary drugs, uh, and the equivalent of generic competition in the biotech world is what's called biosimilars. They're not quite exactly the same, but they're close enough that they're called biosimilars. And so the way that generic drugs can save a lot of money and do uh, with normal pharma pills, why not the same with biosimilars? And uh, there's a legal battle, there's a regulatory problem, there's some safety questions, but mostly that's overdone. The bottom line here is they're coming. It's happening already. Um, and it's going to happen in ways that we don't expect. It may, and, and, and this example that I give in the book, um, you know, we all know Pfizer is America's probably uh, biggest and best-known drug company, um, one that prides itself on innovation, one that hates generic drugs, right? They, 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 their lawyers are right up there immediately to, to take on any generic companies that try to you know, in, uh, infringe on their patents. But guess what? When it came to biotech, it's not a strong suit for them. They are doing, they want to get into the biosimilars game themselves where biotech companies have the strength. And they said, um, in a move about two years ago, they said, you know what? We want to be in the biosimilar space. It's important for societies, big profits to come. We don't know how to do it. Why don't we tie up with a company in India called uh, Biocon, India's leading biotech company. And the relationship between these two companies is absolutely eye-opening. The world's biggest, most successful pharma company, Pfizer, is not doing the R&D. The little Indian biotech company called Biocon is coming up with the biosimilars, owning the IP. Pfizer is going to market and, and sell and have the pharma reps come and bother the doctors and give away the trips to Cancun and so on, right? And so you could argue maybe that's what Pfizer does best. In this case, they decided there's a center of excellence coming in the developing world. So I say watch this space. It's maybe a little bit more hopeful than you think.
Yes, sir. I think this might have to be our last question. Yeah. Hi, David Jones. Um, I'd like to ask you to follow up a little bit more on um, your comment that um, innovators, particularly in the social, socially important sectors, need to be maybe compensated or um, incentivized differently, and particularly with reference to the reality that in the United States, almost all of our big medical institutions are organized as nonprofit corporations where um, salaries are high, transparency is low, there's no stock that right. can potentially motivate people. The same is also true in education. Um, some of our greatest institutions have that. Is there a conflict? How do we deal with that? Sure. There's really two questions embedded in that. Uh, I'll make a short comment about nonprofit hospitals. Um, it's an inflammatory comment, but I'll refer people to a series of studies done by the GAO, um, you know, the, the government's watchdog agency, uh, that cast a lot of doubt on the nonprofit status of uh, nonprofit hospitals. And argue, not because they don't take care of people, they do, uh, but they asked, you know, how much charitable work is really done? Is it any uh, different from the private sector hospitals down the road? Uh, they may have very uh, endearing names like Sisters of Mercy, but if the hospital executive is paid multiple six figures and, and they're not actually doing any charitable work or turning away people at the ER, um, shouldn't they pay taxes like other corporate citizens? This, these aren't my words. This is actually a very in, in damning set of studies done by the GAO. So I think this, those are legitimate questions, and I, I actually endorsed an investigation into that. Um, that's not going to solve the problems of American healthcare. That's a, a bigger ball of wax. Um, but you also asked, and I'll answer briefly on this, how do we provide... Uh, more incentives to those who are working in the social good. Um, and I think, you know, rethinking philanthropy is one important solution, uh, what's been called philanthrocapitalism. And I'll give an example. I think some of you will know uh, the example, but it's systemic of a broader trend. Um, there's an a, a, a unusual venture capital fund called Acumen Fund run by a woman called Jackie Novogratz, Jacqueline Novogratz out of New York. And um, they take money from normal philanthropists, people who give money away, right? Uh, Rockefeller Foundation or, or um, you know, anyone in this room that wants to give money. Uh, but rather than just give it away to poor people and say, you know, we feel sorry for you, here's some money, please, you know, do something, or dumping on them solar panels or something else and saying sayonara, um, what Acumen Fund does is um, it finds entrepreneurs in the developing world working on areas that have social impact. It might be uh, areas of water scarcity, for example, pro uh, companies that are trying to solve that problem in Pakistan, or in the case of Tanzania, it's uh, bed nets because malaria is a huge problem. Just to take that example, um, Acumen has invested in a company called A to Z bed nets. Um, and what do they do? They provide uh, uh, bed nets that have anti-malarial uh, uh, medicine in fact, uh, embedded in them, but rather than give them away for free, uh, they charge a little bit. And you might say, oh, that's terrible. How can you charge anything? People are very poor. But charging a little bit allows them to do a couple of things. One, they have a sustainable business model. They find that even the very poorest do have a little bit of money to pay for things that matter to them. And when you have some skin in the game, you take care of the bed net rather than cast them aside. But also they found by, by treating the market as a listening device, they were able to understand the needs of people who they treated as customers rather than as sort of uh, passive and pathetic victims. And so their sales reps got a rough ride. They said, you know, why are you making this from this material? It's too scratchy. I'm not going to pay you the $1. Uh, and so they came back and softened the material. They said, why don't you make them in some colors? My girl likes pink. And I say, okay, there's an idea. Why not make it in interesting colors? That is, you treat people with respect and listen to what the, how they live their lives. And that charging that very small amount found they got much higher utilization rates and now A to Z is not only a viable business enterprise, it's the second largest employer in Tanzania, 
Acumen has gotten its money back. Now, there are other examples of them where they didn't get their money back, but that's the kind of investment in a for-profit company that's doing social good. They might not be profit-maximizing. They could have tried to charge 10 or 100 bucks or some other number, but they charge enough to cover their costs and then some to reinvest. I think that's a new kind of hybrid business model, and the rewards for that innovator are coming from fresh thinking that uh, Acumen Fund, in this case, and the, and the philanthropic capitalists willing to back them. They said, we're going to have some patient capital. I think that's a powerful new idea, and I think that could really help change the world. Great. So on that optimistic note, thank you very much.